Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It takes a pandemic. Okay, you fill in the rest. For instance, it takes a pandemic for me to finally clean out my desk. Right, um, it takes a pandemic to start reading that pile of New Yorkers. Uh, it takes a pandemic for me to finally learn to fake. Well, for audiences of live performance, it takes a pandemic to cherish our actors and musicians. With our great jazz venues and theaters closed, live performance has stopped. But actors and musicians continue to create. They have to. It's who they are. For this Hunker Down podcast, I talk with these artists who perform for a living about how social distancing is affecting their work now and when this is all over. About their dedication to the art of live performance. That was the opening of Schoenberg's String Quartet No. 3, Opus 30, performed by the Fred Sherry String Quartet. Why that one? For me, it reflects the anxiety of this coronified moment and a fevered hope for change. Okay, about Sherry. Alan Cozine, music critic for the New York Times, wrote, quote, Few musicians have been as devoted to new and difficult music as he has, both as a soloist and through his involvement with ensembles like the Tashi Quartet, Speculum Musicae, and the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. I had the feeling that going into this conversation with Fred Sherry that there'd be a problem in having a brief or focused conversation. This man's experiences are so deep and creatively varied and influential over many decades that finding a focus would be difficult, and it was. So maybe we can see this as a start in finding out about Fred Sherry, and I suggest that you just sit down and enjoy the ride. <laughs> little smile. You look too serious. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it's a serious time. <laughs> Maybe I should send send this to you before I actually post. It. Oh, I, I don't really care what I look like. I oh, mean, okay. I care what I look like, but it looks really idiotic. I guess I do care that I don't. I mean, if you think it's good enough, I think it's good enough. It's oh, look, of, you can see the toilet bowl. I I cropped that out. I took, <laughs> okay. I took the toilet. What I, what I do see is masks in the background. So. Oh, you that? Do you know what that is? That's a, a flute piece by Oliver Nussen. Did you know who he was? No. He was quite a well-known English composer. Who did uh, he did where the wild things are opera? Wow, read and, that read that to our kids all the time. Haven't read it to the grandson yet. Oh yeah, well the 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 thing that was nice about Ollie was that he was a tremendous musician, 
And uh, he was a friend of both Carol and myself at different times. Well, your, your Carol wife. Archer, she kept her oh. name. You know, we lived together, of course, we're married and stuff. Yeah. So uh, we share a lot of things. And she plays piano. I used to play professionally and kind of gave it up when she hated the traveling and the the touring and the, you know. Hunker Down podcast is really about what happens to performers when you can't collaborate. It's a tragedy for most of us, I think. But it's not only about losing the money, which is can be for some people, not for myself because I'm older already. But the idea that, you know, classical musicians play without the need for electricity except to turn on the lights or the air handling system so whatever we whatever sound we make comes to the audience directly and that makes it a far superior experience than hearing a rock and roll band with the, the thousands of speakers or being in a place that's so large that you can't even see the audience because and i have played for like twelve thousand people on occasion and it's a, it's an odd situation it's not intimate at all not like playing for 500 people or it's not like I was talking yesterday with a young conductor, uh, Robert Kahn, at Curtis Institute, and he's hunkered down there in Philly, but he got his students together, about 20 of them, and they each individually played uh, their piece of America the Beautiful, and then it was edited together, and it's quite beautiful. And, yes. and I know you've, been, you've, you've worked at the Curtis Institute, yes? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that, and, and we talked about the experience of a young conductor who now can't do his thing. I mean, there's no <laughs> he way get he can. Get in front of the mirror and, and conduct a little bit. Yeah, he, 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 said, he, he said he can't. It's like, and he's worried about whether or not he's going to lose his chops over the next couple months, you know, not actually being out there and working with an orchestra. Well, uh, he's, yeah, maybe he's younger. I think. He's you very know, young. He's very young. Used, I started performing in front of audiences when I was quite young. Yeah. Early teenager, and, and and after a while, it's not that you get used to it, but you know how to respond when you walk out on stage to the audience, and like you can feel their enthusiasm or lack of enthusiasm as right. soon as you walk out on stage, and that's why I think the walk out is it, it shouldn't be too aggressive, but it should shouldn't be too timid, and I think that the the performers expected to look at the audience and humble himself by bowing. Yes. To the audience, and then you forget about them. Just go about your work. Yeah. Do you do you totally forget about them? I mean, is it all just you're focused on what you're doing, and the audience becomes irrelevant? You can't forget about them because inevitably somebody's going to you know start doing something, and you'll you'll see or sense motion in the audience, or somebody will walk out, and the door opens, and light streams in from oh, outside the boy. auditorium, or you know, uh, I remember one time. This was not a good story. I guess I've got to tell it now, but you can always take it out. Uh, I was playing, I think it was a string quartet concert, and I don't remember where it was, but it was a string quartet, and we were bringing the spet in the quartet, and uh, there was the sound of jingling and jangling in the audience. I thought, well, whoever that is just has no concept of, of you know, what's going on and why, what's, why that sound is so, you know, not wanted. And I'm sure the people around her, and it turned out to be a her, uh, unfortunately, it was it was a seeing eye dog, uh, and, and the dog was shaking his collar. Oh wow! I mean, there's another story that I read that you were doing a Schoenberg piece for the uh, Lincoln Center Chamber Society, oh, and yeah. that and that some of the older audience members just weren't into it, and that uh, during a break they kind of left. And you, uh, the story is you got and got upset with them. 
Is that is that oh, is there that, any truth to that? That's not true. And actually, the man yeah. that wrote that, I can't I can't remember his name. He's a, he's a critic that he accused me of giving them the finger, uh, which I never would do in any case. I mean, I might outside of the concert experience, but not during. And uh, all I wanted to say was that it's going to be an encore. This beautiful uh, version that Schoenberg wrote of Finiculi Finicula, oh. and I was I was in, you know, going to try and tell him to stay. It's only three minutes long, but uh, that guy didn't like what I was doing. But later on. When he interviewed me, maybe two or three years later, he apologized for that. I said, I wish you hadn't written in the first place because I never gave him the finger. Yeah. Was that Alan Cozine from New York Times? No, no, there wasn't Alan. It was uh, you uh, know, John Rockwell? No, I know John. Yeah. It was another guy. Another guy. Okay. Okay. I, I, I know I read it. I try it. not to remember people's names. Let's go back. You were born in Peekskill, New York. Yes. And uh, were your parents into classical music at all? Is that where you got started with the interest? Yeah, my dad was an amateur singer, and he had a very good record collection, which 33s in those days. He still had some 78s. The 78s were just going out, 33s coming in. And my mom oddly had a tin ear. And, and, and so we used to ask her to sing America, speak with America the Beautiful. We asked, we'd ask her to sing, America, the beautiful. <laughs> she couldn't keep, hold on to the pitch at all. And, you know, myself and my two brothers, we were just you know, on the floor laughing at her. And I think she liked to entertain us by singing it. By the way, you know, the interesting story that goes along with that is that he had a wonderful collection of string quartets and he had the complete Schomburg quartets, the first recording that the Juilliard Quartet did. And uh, he also had the Budapest Quartet doing the Beethoven string quartets. And believe it or not, as a young lad of six or seven years old, I thought that Beethoven and Schoenberg were the same kind of composer. Oh. And, and, and it just, that was fascinating music to me. And, and later on, when I told my teacher, well, you know, Schoenberg and Beethoven, they're, they're both <laughs> great composers in kind of the same style. And I said, no, 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 Schoenberg's terrible, but Beethoven is the master. Uh-huh. And then... Later on, I realized that I was right. You are a cello player. You're a cellist. Uh, yes. Have you always been a cello player, or did did you come to it? No, I was. It was a, it was an arranged marriage in a certain sense because uh, my older brother was playing the piano, and I told my dad I wanted to play something. So he said, "Go to the school and see if they have an instrument for you." Wow! And so I asked the music teacher, "Can I play an instrument?" And he said, "Do you know what that is?" pointing to a cello. I said, yes, that's a cello. He said, okay, that's yours. Wow. What grade was that? I guess second grade. Huh. Holy moly. So what yeah. if he had pointed at an accordion? I would be Bill Schimmel. <laughs> I, 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 I used to play the accordion very badly. I think badly is almost making it sound like I was better than I was. And um, the reason I got the accordion is because it was my uncle had an accordion and it was the instrument in the closet, so I got the accordion and my brother got the guitar. So oh, yeah. he, he got he got the cool the cool instrument. I don't play anything and I like to hear from musicians who are who are like top of their game, right? What it's like to play the cello at the level that you play. What does it feel like mm. to get the sound that you get? that you probably get now pretty easily, but you had a struggle at the beginning to get it. Oh yeah, it's hard to play one note. That's why the piano, just put your finger down and the note comes out. But with the cello, you gotta get that bow and draw it across the string in a way that makes a decent sound. But um, I think it's, it's a very difficult question to answer because it depends what I'm playing and with whom I'm playing. And, and you know, the, 
the ups and downs of every day. This was a good day. This was a bad day. They all come into it. And then um, people often say, well, what's your favorite piece to play? And then usually the answer is whatever it is that I'm playing that day. Yeah. That's not the question I'm really getting to. The question I was is like, what is the physicality of it? What is the feeling from, from a, from a, like this is muscles and, and, it, I mean, I know what it feels like when I'm, I, I do a game called lawn bowling and I know m- muscle wise, I know what it feels like when I'm into it. Oh yeah. There must be that feeling in playing the cello. Well, there isn't, uh, for me, every day is training day. So, and I'm a rudiments player primarily. I mean, I can play, played a lot of extremely hard pieces that very few other people have played or want to play, but I often start the day out. And I hate to say it, but playing like long tones and very simple patterns and scales and things like that. And then as I warm up, because, you know, I'm 71 now, it's not as easy to warm up as it was 40 years ago. And uh, so then I, I warm into my playing and then uh, I try to discover something about my sound that I maybe was going to sound refreshing to me either. And you in, still could do that. Yeah. Say it again. I still st- do that. Yeah. You still can Every find day. something that's new, that's refreshing, that you hadn't heard before. Yeah, but I've always heard it before. Because as, as many people have said, well, there are 12 tones in the chromatic scale. And then if you use quarter tones, there's 12 more. So that makes 24. But really, it's like the, but when you think about it, what is that I mean, exceptionally large number? There are 439,000,600 combinations of 12 notes. Hmm. So you don't really run out of stuff to do. Is that a real number, or you just came up with that? No, that's I, I I've looked it up. I can't remember. Is it four hundred thirty nine, four hundred sixty nine million, something or other? And then all, all out there. everything we hear comes out of that, more or less. Some, but then, of course, there are quarter tones. You know, the, the, the spaces between yeah, the notes are yeah, notes yeah. themselves. Yeah, you have had a uh, a varied career as as a musician. You've done. Chamber music, you're still doing chamber music. Concert sol- soloist performer uh, all over the world with that. You've headed up the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, did that for a number of years, for a few years. You've co-founded music groups, uh, Speculum uh, Musicae, the Tashi Quartet, the Fred Sherry String Quartet, there's probably others that I'm, I'm, I'm sure that I'm not doing it. You teach at Juilliard Music, you, you still teach yes. there. So the question is, what is your chiefest soul delight of all the stuff you do? You left out a lot of things, but all right, you t- tell me what things. else you do. Because you know, I was I, I was playing at the at the ballet pit with the New York City Ballet. I, I like that experience because, first of all, I really like the Tchaikovsky ballets and the Glazunov and all those things, those, those corny pieces that people accept now, but they think they're cornball. But also, I got to see George Balanchine at work. And and that was it. That was a thrill, and I got to play with so many of the well-known composers and musical figures of our day. And and some of the most of them are gone now. But that was that was maybe my biggest thrill was uh, coaching with Olivier Messiaen, or you know having a tête-à-tête conversation with Lenny Bernstein, or playing next to Itzhak Perlman. All right, all right, wait, and, wait, wait. Uh, you you then, you you spoke with Leonard Bernstein. You know, he he liked to talk to me because he knew I was into the new music, and so and so was he. You know, he was he thought of himself as a new music composer, and uh, he was to a certain extent. And I played I played principal cello with the Bernstein Mass. We did sixty four performances. Oh my! And uh, and, and and 
one of the funny Lenny stories, which I, I like to tell it because it's interesting how he thought of things. He said, he said, Fred, do you know the two, the, the greatest villains of the 20th century, musical villains of the 20th century? I said, no, Lenny, who are they? He said, well, Robert Kraft, because he spoiled Stravinsky, and John Coltrane, because he ruined jazz. Wow. And what is your <laughs> comeback to that? Uh, I think it's just concern, a look of deep concern. I know you had worked with Robert Kraft. I yes. had done a program with Ralph Schulte, the violinist, who had uh, worked with Kraft. Robert Kraft was the chief conductor of Stravinsky. And, yes, uh, and many other things. And many I other things, he, right. Yeah. Stravinsky relied on Bob for, for so many things. And, and people didn't like Bob because they felt he was the gatekeeper for Stravinsky. And if, if they didn't get to see the master, it was Bob's fault. So he took a lot of heat for that. But he had so many rewards. And I think the first time I played with Bob was in a memorial concert for Stravinsky when after he died in 71, but I think the concert was in 72, and we played the, uh, the concertino uh, for 10 instruments, 12 instruments, excuse me. got to rehearse Stravinsky's apartment on Fifth Avenue. That was a thrill, by the way. Wow. Because everybody's looking around at all the stuff. They, all the books were still on the shelves and the mementos and the paintings and all the stuff. But I saw it, and it was a huge place. Uh, and I, I saw from the corner, there was a dressing room screen. And I uh, said, so I wonder what's behind that. And so went around the, uh, behind it and saw an old beat-up chair. Stuffing was falling out. Uh, to the right of the chair was a liquor stand, and there was a bottle of Laphroaig scotch on the top, half gone. I thought, well, that's what I'm getting when I leave. And there was a box full of records, and it was all old music. It was Jeswaldo, Bach, Monteverdi, and, uh, and Beethoven, a number of, but older composers as well, Dufay and Josquin Dupre. You met Stravinsky. Never met him. Never met him, but you, but you knew uh, Kraft, right? Another collaboration, and someone that I also have done a, a, a show on, Mario Davidovsky. What about that collaboration with Davidovsky? Well, it was always different, and th the one that I remember enjoying the most was that he wrote a cello concerto, which was uh, which I premiered at, at Tully Hall, and uh, we had many sessions going over the cello concerto, what it should sound like, and 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 he was. He was a deep musician and a deep guy and a funny guy, but he was also, it was a dark, you, you saw him. He's a, a very tall guy with a big hooked nose. And he, oh, Fred, I am so depressed about the scene of music today. <laughs> that kind of thing. But um, he was fascinating to work with. And, and I, I don't think that I always got his music the way he liked it, but we worked hard on it. And I think the recording came out okay. And, uh, but I went a number of times, like it starts off with a, a solo cello, uh, cadenza and it starts off soft and 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 Mario said I don't want to hear the beginning of the first note I said oh okay and then easing into the sound and then he liked violent changes and he would scream and sing violently to express that and then he would like a certain kind of crude sound where one just <laughs> broke the note apart um, 
So that was good. I learned that from him. And then also the variety of attacks and the variety of ways that the solo cello collaborated with the orchestra that, you know, did different things together and separately. And that was that was fascinating. I love playing that. It's, it's very interesting because I talked to Ralph Schulte who did the... Um, Oh, synchronism. Synchronism num- number yeah. number nine, right? He talked about it very similarly the way you just talked about it, with that attack and that oh, yeah. that uh, effect of the... Uh, what he said is he was trying to get the effect of the electronic sound. Oh, uh, yes, on occasion he'd like... Because the, the, that piece is has an electronic part. The concerto does not, but there's a cello piece. And he liked when there would be a seamless connection between the electronics and, and the live instrument, and then when there wasn't, also that would be... It'd be a live person, and then be the the canned part right, of it. and then the attempt to try to bring those together, so you almost couldn't tell when one was overlapping the other. What's the name of that piece? Oh well, the, the concerto. It was called Divertimento for okay. cello and orchestra. Another collaboration you had with is something totally different with, with Chick Corea, oh, yeah. uh, the jazz pianist and Tell composer. Me. And composer, and um, there was a piece, the Continent Concerto for Jazz Quintet and Chamber Orchestra. Now you were part of that, right? Well, that on that one, we'd already worked together many times before mm-hmm. that, and uh, on that one, I, it was an orchestra, and I was I contracted the players for the orchestra on that one. And then, and we did it in collaboration. He wanted certain players of his own to be in there. And uh, so I put together this group of people that I knew were going to be sympathetic. And, and a chick, I think, was very happy with the group. And we were even talking about doing something in 2022 mm. uh, with orchestra again. But the, the first thing we did was a thing called the Leprechaun's Dream. And that was back, I can't tell you when it was, it was in the 70s sometime. And oh, even before we did that recording, um, do you remember the remember well, John McLaughlin is a name that I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. and uh, he had that group called the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and and Gail Moran played piano, and Gail and Chick, you know, are married, have been together forever, and so Chick said, "I want to find out how to how to uh, how to write for strings. Who should I call?" And Gail and John, everybody was going to each other's concerts in those days, so it didn't matter if you just as long as you liked the person, you know, we all got to know each other. So Gail said, "Well." get Fred and he'll get a quartet together and come over. I, we went over to his house, which was out on Long Island at the time. And I brought out, it was Ida Kavafian, Annie Kavafian, Louise Shulman, and myself. And, and we brought a Haydn string quartet. Cause I thought if you want to see the greatest master of the string quartet writing, it's kind of Haydn. And then he wrote a couple of things for us to play. And then he asked about orchestrating certain chords. And I remember we talked about the major seventh chord and then, we all showed him how it's possible to divide up those notes into not, you know, close intervals, but far intervals and put certain notes in certain instruments and cross over certain voices. And then 
he gave us something else to play and he said, Oh, I'll, I'll let you guys play through it a little bit and I'll go upstairs. And when he came down the stairs, he was like, he was kind of overcome by it. Wow. He actually wrote something good. If I were to play something right now, uh, representing this period of time when you work with Chick Corea, what would, what should I play? Well, you could play, you could play the, uh, the septet or you could play the lyric suite, which was more of a jazz piece. And that, that was featured Chick and Gary Burton. And we toured that a lot. And that was tremendous fun because, yeah, he wanted to play some classical music on these concerts. So we would play the last movie of the Mozart E major piano trio. And sometimes he and I would play the first of the Schumann fantasy pieces. And Aida Kavaskin and I would play the, uh, the, the second movement of the Ravel Sonata. And uh, this is yeah, during, were, uh, this during a, a generally a jazz concert. These are jazz concerts. And, and a lot of times people would get used to Chick coming out with a jazz group and they would yell out, you know, where's the drum set? <laughs> so did you feel they were kind of disappointed that, that, you know, there's this classical musicians up on stage rather than the drum set? I think not by the end of the concert, they were totally uh, into it. There but they were, yeah, they were used to, they, they came probably expecting a certain kind of thing and that, oh, here are these string quartet guys on stage. Yeah, yeah. for one second because we were talking about the the uh, you know all the collaborations but there were three composers with whom I collaborated more than any others and I'll say their names in chronological order not how I worked with them but uh, how when they were born the first was Elliot Carter mm -hmm. the second was Milton Babbitt mm -hmm. and the third was Charles Warren and with Charles that was more than the other two but uh, for all well for for Charles and Elliot I played their, I premiered their concertos, their cello yeah. concertos. And with Milton, I just worked with him and we were kind of friends. And Milton was one of the greatest musicians and greatest people that I worked with. They were, everybody was, they were all great. I don't want to say one was better than the other. Milton was funny all the time. Tell me about Carter. I mean, what was it like working with him? Well, the first time I worked with him, I was quite young, maybe 18 or something like that. Oh, well, actually, the first time I ever actually played for him was in an orchestra. I was maybe 14, right. but he was the visiting composer at a festival that I was a part of. And then we did the, uh, it was the quartet for harpsichord, flute, oboe, and cello. And, and he came in and coached us. And I remember the first, the first session where he coached us. And I called him Mr. Carter because I was a teenager still and I felt young, and he was always, always, uh, always forty years older than I am. No matter how old I was, he was always forty years older. And and he said, "Oh, please call me Elliot." I said, "Okay, Elliot." <laughs> yeah. And and we got to be friends. I think he knew that I loved his music, and that I practiced it hard. And so we got along. And then after that, we just kept on doing different um, different projects. That the Specular Music I commissioned him to write that uh, song set, the mirror, on, a mirror on which to dwell, which was Elizabeth Bishop uh, poetry, which actually I and we Elizabeth Bishop came to one of our our rehearsals, and she's a hero to me by the way, as as a poet. 
Um, and, and, and the third, Warner, you, uh, Ralph Schulte mentioned that I should ask you about that. I'm sorry I didn't. Oh, yeah. what, what was it like working uh, with that composer? Well, Charles, you know, all the composers are different about how they talk about their music. And, and Elliot talked about it a certain way, and Milton talked about it another way. And Milton would never talk about anything, by the way. He, he would just let you do what you want, and he wanted to know how you felt about his music. And Charles was the guy that I started, my, one of my first professional um, concerts was in the spring of 66. And it was with Charles and Harvey Solberger, and, and Gunther Schuller was there as well, and a number of other people. It, it was, I got the job because I think, I guess maybe I was already playing some new music around here and there. And this guy, Jack Glick, Jack's gone, but thank you, Jack, for getting me in with those people. And I, I thought, well, in one rehearsal with these musicians, I've learned more than I learned at Juilliard for the whole year. It was my, the end of my first year at Juilliard. And, and then I kept on working with Charles and all these other composers that were, but with Charles primarily. And I, I admired his music. And a lot of people said, hey, his music is shit. Huh. You know, that's no good. And I said, I, I don't agree. I think he's a master. And it, I think that he turned out to be not a master, but one of the masters of everything. He could write operas and concertos and solo pieces and chamber music and dramatic pieces and funny pieces. And, and uh, well, we used to play together a lot. And there were times when um, there's a piece called, <laughs> uh, what, what is that called? Uh, the Fast Fantasy, yeah because I played so many. Uh, the Fast Fantasy, I uh, had this place. So I said, Charles, you know, this reminds me of that film Bambi meets Godzilla. <laughs> Got to see that one. I haven't seen that one yet. <laughs> you haven't seen that? Oh, it's a funny, it's it's a, it's mainly, uh, it's it's a set of, it's a long list, it's a long, you know, intro with music and you see Bambi, you know, among the flowers. I think I know how and it ends. Bambi's wardrobe, Bambi's <laughs> travel, Bambi's catering. Yeah. And then, a giant foot comes down, smashes Bambi. Squish. I and think then, I have seen it. Yeah. Then the outro starts. You know, the, the music starts over again. <laughs> Bambi's wardrobe by. <laughs> okay, that's funny. That's that was I thought there was that that was the 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 if there was not I want to say it was funny but a humorous part to Charles's writing is that he knew how the timing was perfect and not only that when in the opera that he uh, that I wasn't a part of but I I was pretty familiar with it's called Haroon and the Sea of Stories it's based on a Salman Rushdie uh, sure. novel that he he knew how to set up a joke in this quasi comic opera and uh, that was Charles's gift. He was tremendous at timing things out and the formal elements, which form by form, I don't mean some crazy idea that musicians have form and it's, you know, something pasted on the wall, but just the sense of, of 
the flow and the character and the and the, the rapidity or not of changes in the music style and musical speech. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that. You were the head of the Lincoln Center Chamber Music Society for a number of years, and yes. you tried to bring in some new ideas, and I guess you were pushing up against some older listeners. It reminds me of one of my favorite television shows, Mozart in the Jungle. I wonder oh, yes. if you're familiar with it. Well, um, I don't want to be, maybe you can just take this out if you don't feel it's appropriate, but I was in the book. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, Blair's book. Oh, I know I know nothing about that. Do you, oh, do you, you don't know anything? There was a book that started with Blair Tyndall uh, is an oboist who, you know, she just was in and out of the music world a lot. And she wrote this tell-all book, which got a lot of people in trouble. Yeah. And, and then uh, Mozart in the they, Jungle they came out of that. spun it off into the TV show. Wow. All right. So I'm not so far off in seeing a connection here. Did you see the TV show? Did you watch any of it? No. Okay. All right. But But the book was presenting... This idea, and that's what the TV show is about, Rodrigo, the conductor of a New York symphony, and, he, and he's trying new stuff. He's trying to bring in new stuff and modernize the symphony. And he's, he's up against uh, Malcolm McDowell, who plays the old uh, conductor. And so some of this was based on your experiences in the Chamber Society, do you think? Yes. And, and the funny thing was that, number one, in hindsight, the worst mistake I ever made was becoming the director at that time. Uh, you know, following the great years of Charlie Wadsworth, where, you know, things for 20 years were just going get great. But when I, you know, when I auditioned for the job or, you know, interviewed and everybody was talking about what they wanted and what they thought might happen. And I said, well, I had an idea that, that the programs could be updated and, and there would be more music and I, more new music. And I actually told them what I was going to do. And they said, oh, this is good. You should do it. And then I did it. And then they didn't like it. And then I didn't like them. And then there were some very funny things, Alan, which I, you know, I think I told them I, at the time that, that I was asked to leave, um, they said, oh, we have a settlement for you. And if you accept our settlement, then we will expect that you won't say anything about what happened behind the scenes. So, but I, of course, didn't take the settlement because what, what did that matter? And I, I, I would was going to enjoy telling the stories of, of what happened at the Chamber Music Society, but I think maybe now is not the time to tell all the all the dark stuff. That when happened. when is that going to come out? <laughs> the next time you interview. Oh, really? Well, I'm not against telling the stories, and some of them were some of them were comical, and um, I think many of the people who played a large part in that are gone anyway. Yeah, but Charlie's still around, so I, maybe I should. Okay. All right. All right. I like to uh, be discreet, but I'm, of course, I'm not a discreet person. No, no, yeah. I mean, that's that's the sense I'm getting is that you're ver you're very open and you just you, you you just say it as as it is. But I think that's very interesting that Mozart in the Jungle is in part uh, re relying on an experience that you had uh, with um, trying to modernize an, an orchestra or or a quartet. Or we're really uh, Mozart in the Jungle was all about Blair's experience yeah. with all the musicians that she came into contact yeah. with. In fact, I I just had a conversation with uh, John Miller, who played the timpanist in that in that show, 
uh, in Mozart in the Jungle. And I know another actor, Joel Bernstein, who played the head violinist, the, the oh. first chair in, in that. He doesn't play the violin, but he played the first chair. I was very curious about your work in 52 Living Composers in 1999. This was after you headed up the um, Lincoln Center uh, Chamber Society. The Great Day in New York and comparing it to the photograph. I'm really kind of curious about the photograph that, that you oh, took. Yeah. And the photograph that was inspired it, which is a photograph of the Harlem jazz players back in uh, 1959 or 1957 when um, it was taken by Art Kane. Art Kane, yeah. Right. I think interesting. Art Kane. It's like Arcane almost. Um, Arcane and Art Kane. And Art Kane, right. What was the inspiration to bring in 52 living composers and then you know, do their music, and then take this picture of them. What's that story? Well, it's a long story. And it, and the a good friend of mine, her name is Vicki Margulies, was running the music at Merkin Concert Hall. And this was the late 90s. And I, I she would ask me what I thought would be interesting to do at Merkin. And I, I brought a number of projects her way. We did a, a weekend of Arnold Schoenberg. That was fun. We had, I mean, that was, that was, a, that was there was a, a tremendous amount of Schoenberg's music. And Bob Kraft, can we, can, he conducted the Chamber Symphony Opus 9. And we recorded it after that. And, and Rolf played on there. We did the, the string trio and the string quartet number two. And then we, we had panel discussions in Jim Levine and Milton Babbitt and Charles Warren and, and John Zorn, and it was good. So Vicky liked working with me on that. And we knew, we'd known each other for way before that as well. And then she said, okay, I got to do something big this year. What should I do? I said, well, you know, the best thing you could do is you could have this uh, a series of concerts featuring all of New York's great composers. And I think I singled out 10, and it could be called New York's Finest. There would be a cartoon Arnie Roth, who was a friend, would draw the cartoon and that there'd be these figures in the clouds overhead looking down. And, and even Carol said, that's not a good idea. That's not going to work. And Vicky said, you know, I don't think that's going to work. That's when I saw the film that uh, Gene Bach made. And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. It's going to be more composers and it's going to have a film and it's going to have a photo. And then I went to work trying to figure out who was going to be on it. So it, it got bigger and bigger. It might have been Fran Richard, who was at ASCAP at that time, take the lists of ASCAP and BMI and, and draw like a 60-mile radius around New York and do all the, do it by zip code. Picked out 200 composers. So we said, well, you can't have 200 composers. You know, that's just too many. So I said, okay, how about... 100 composers, 60 composers or something. Then finally, it got whittled down. I think there were 54. Then it was a tremendous job. And Carol and I did it right in this room where I'm talking to you now. We did the whole thing ourselves, calling people and making charts and lists of things and how are we going to put this thing together. We were searching around for the photographer in the location. The name Bruce Davidson came up. This guy is magic, and if we can get him, it would be great. Then we did our own location scouting and went all over New York and saw places in Central Park and you know, tripping around New York was fun. Then we went down to the, uh, the Alexander Hamilton Custom House in Lower Manhattan, and, and that turned out to be the place. They have this, that's where the picture was taken on that, on that staircase at the top of the building. As this was a mom and pop thing, I called and said, can I speak to the building manager? And then, uh, so they said, well, okay, we'll connect you with his office. And 
And so they called out to Steve. Steve, there's this guy, Fred Sherry, on the phone. He wants to know about renting the place. Fred Sherry? You mean the guy that I'm always going to hear at concerts? And that was that was the moment that I knew we were in and that this thing was charmed. Yeah. And, and Steve was fantastic about, I think he didn't charge us anything. To do. Wow. Maybe there was to set up the lights and stuff. There were nine concerts altogether. There were three at, at Merkin that started the thing off. That was a weekend thing. And then there were six at Alice Tully Hall. After it was a lousy idea, it turned out to be the best idea. Lincoln Center wanted in on it. So I said, okay, you guys are in. It's going to cost you some money, though. After a while, it, it got to be big. And somebody said, well, you need some help from yeah. the Lincoln Center people. said, you need some help. So we're going to we'll have so-and-so help you. And then that person really fucked it up. Wow. Um, pardon me, I guess can I say that? No, 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 I, 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 I hear that. That's the exact right word to use. I'm yeah. sure for what... So it was, and then, then Carol and I had to go and clean up the mess Yeah, it was caused. Some, it's just easier sometimes to do it yourself. The two pictures, that the two pictures, I, I've looked at them, I've compared them. The one in the um, downtown in the... Um, you, you told me the name of the building. Yeah, the Alexander Hamilton Custom Alexander House. Alexander Hamilton Custom House is very flowy... Uh, it almost reminds me of a treble, the treble uh, sign. Yeah, it's because it goes one way and it goes the other way. And it has a very, I don't know, it just looks classical. And the Harlem one, which I'm sure you're familiar with yes. uh, by Art Kane, is um, it's square. There's kids on the, on the stoops, people looking outside the window. It seems very much representing the, kind, the two different kinds of music. Is that fair to say? I don't know because there were some jazzers in the Great Day, um, yeah. and and so I, I, I mean, as a person who's I, I'm not a jazzer myself, but I mean, I love jazz. I listen to it quite often, and uh, and and played some of it. But um, I don't think this that musicians are musicians. I think we all kind of get along. We're all doing the same thing in some way. We're dealing with notes and we're yeah. we're dealing with rhythms and we can appreciate each other's music so i don't but i know what you mean i mean the i think that also i wanted our photo to be outdoors originally and i i scouted out a lot of locations that were outdoors and then um i was told by many people and especially by bruce that if you have that you got to have like a medic because we're you have to remember there were so many more people on the on our thing than there were yeah. because there was there were all these there were the 52 54 composers and then there were lots of other people that had to be there they all brought guests and they said you you got to have insurance you got to have well, you know medical people around you got to be careful that you don't get sued i started imagining just kind of like first like who goes in front and how do you line oh. them up the stairs and and then Alan, you asked the best question though can i can i interrupt pardon me for interrupting because, go right ahead Here's the thing that happened. Well, first of all, you know, not all the composers liked each other. So Mr. X said, I don't want to stand next to Miss Y. And Mr. Z said, I don't want to stand next to Mr. B. And so it's like, oh, man. So that was another chart. So we're trying to, each composer had a, had a, a number and a, and a name. And we started putting people on the staircase. And there was no way that we could work it out. <laughs> so then this woman who helped to organize the whole thing said, you know, I got a great idea. She said, it's a lottery. And, and there are four positions on the staircase and you draw out of a hat and you had the 54 numbers and you had the, you had the clearly marked where people are going to go. So somebody said, well, why did some of those people go down below on the second staircase? Said, That's the number. They got a number four. Except you did have some premier older uh, composers in the front to give them Correct. that honored position. 
And and the answer to that is if you were over 80, because there was lots of standing around and yeah. there's a lot of hijinks going on. You can't imagine what it was like, people yelling out to each other and stuff. If you were over 80, you got to stand in the front row and mainly that that was Milton and George Pearl and Elliot Carter. Yeah. yeah. And those guys had a, a chair. You couldn't see them in the photo, but yeah. they were allowed to sit in the chairs while the whole rest of the thing got set up because the setup probably took an hour. Yeah. And so they had a space waiting for them. So, but everybody else was like, and then I, and then I, I, Bruce and I stood on ladders next to each other. He didn't know anybody's name. So I knew everybody's name. So I go like, Aaron Curtis, get your elbow off the, off the banister. <laughs> Yelling out. And it was, it was a riot. Fred, I was afraid this would happen. And that is, that, no, 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 no. I mean, there's always editing, uh, is that there is so much to talk about with you because your career has been so uh, intense, full of depth and variety that it's it's very difficult to choose and pick what what to talk about. But I, I would like to end it here, and I'm going to quote something that you said. A concert is a social occasion. I like to talk a little between pieces. I try to make contact with people I know and even people I don't. And the question is this. It's the contact. It's that connection between the people. And it's not just the connection with the audience. It's the connection with all these people you've been talking about. We've been talking about for the last, you know, several minutes. That's what music is, isn't it? It's that contact. It's that interaction, which you're not doing right now. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, that's the hunkered down part. That's the hunkered down part. Yeah, you're right. And uh, I, I can only say that, I mean, I wish I was playing some concerts. There's something about the the whole the preparation for it and imagining what the program is going to be like and 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 you can't you can't ever know what's going to happen at a concert and that unexpected part is the thing that makes it good and uh by the way uh, and slightly off the track i don't like talking at concerts anymore i gave up on that i used to think it was a good idea and now i think it just kind of disrupts things and and that the words get in the way of a more direct response to the music right but the being there with the audience, with the other uh, chamber players, you don't have that now. Yes. And it's something missing in your life, I would imagine. Well, it's nothing. I mean, you know, as a, as, as, since I've done so much different, many different kinds of work and, and soloed in front of an orchestra and, and played in an orchestra and, and, and played so much, many different kinds of things, the, the feeling that one gets with being on stage with great musicians or any musicians, it's like, you're, you, there's nothing that, you asked what it felt like, maybe rather than a physical feeling, it's the idea that, you know, one person's playing here, one person's playing there, and you're playing down there, and, and all of your sounds are blending, and then everybody wants to try and, uh, in a subtle way, to say what they have to say about their part, and it affects what everybody else does, so it's a true, it's like a troika, you know, that mm -hmm. the three horses are, they're, they're linked together. They can't move without the other one moving. And that's what, it's, that's what a quartet is like or a trio, is that you feel that you, you can't abandon your colleagues, but maybe some, like, you know, some of the horses are faster than the other horses, and they drag the other horse along, and then the other horse knows where to go. And there's a whole interaction that it can't be beat. In, I mean, in my lifetime, that, I, that part about how it feels to walk out and then and you're four separate people, you sit down and you're kind of like one person. 
what's going to happen to the chamber music or orchestral music once we start getting back together again? Is it just going to be, you're just going to continue where you left off or is there going to be a change? Is COVID-19 that's affecting all of us? I mean, all of yeah. us, not just the United States, New York, yes. I mean, all the freaking world. Yes. Is it, is it going to change the concert? I, I don't know. I mean, the thing about today is that, I mean, I like YouTube and, I'm, and I watch it all the time. The, the idea that anything that's canned or electrified or is, is not, you know, what it's not meant to be, that that experience, you can't, it, it's not the same. Even if I stream a live concert, it's not like being in the theater, you know, this seeing the thing happen in real time and hearing the sounds that come out and, and responding to it on right at the moment instead of like, okay, well, I made a recording. It's like making a record. I hope that people want to come back. It's, but it's like going to restaurants to experience real cooking by a real chef in, in, a, in a space with other people. Dining is a lot. I mean, I'd love to cook myself. So dining and cooking is a lot like music. There's, there's a recipe, which is the score. And then what are you going to do with that recipe? You can't just put the stuff together. You got to know what you're doing. So, and then you have to some people enjoy it. Yes. And so I, I, I fervently hope that everybody comes back and is not afraid to be in the theater. And uh, my friend who I talked to uh, this morning, uh, Mike Nicholas, who I actually thought might be a good person to come on the show. I asked him, well, when's the thing, the first thing that you have that hasn't been canceled yet. And he's supposed to go to Korea in uh, at the end of August. And he said, how they're selling the seats is that one seat the purchase of one seat buys you four seats mm. and that so far they're going to go ahead with this thing. So this audience is going to be a quarter of the size of what it would have been. But. And so there'll be a quarter of the take too. I mean, there won't be as much money going into the theater. Yeah. 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 I asked you to come up with a couple of pieces yeah. that you think would help us get through this moment. What do you suggest? Well, I was I, um, I I just would tell you what I've been listening to because I I'm not sure. I mean, people's idea of what music is and what it does for you is so different. But I started listening to a lot of uh, Guillaume Dufay, which is like uh, 15th century music. I, well, I think so. Yeah, it's 15th century. And then uh, Guillaume de Mechel, the great early composer whose music sounds so weird today, but it's great. And and he was also. Uh, he was he was a poet as well as a musician and pieces like the lay of the fountain or my end is my beginning or various chansons and they both Dufay also wrote a lot of liturgical music which is very very beautiful so I would start you know I, that was the first thing that I, I said well I've got time today what am I going to do I'm going to listen to some old music and then Monteverdi of course the great one of the great masters of all time as those other two are and then uh I, I'm always playing Bach, so I rarely listen to Bach, but except when Carol practices some Bach. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, the other things that I was listening to as well, one of them is, I, you know, I love Arnold Schoenberg's music, and so I, I put that on, and but not my own performances. Uh, but oh, you don't listen to your own performances? I, I never do. I try not to. I, I, I want to, that's why I like live music. I don't like canned music, but I I'm glad that I made those recordings. Some of them were pretty good. But you don't want to listen to it because you're going to hear mistakes or it's going to no, affect your play? Okay, let me ask you this question. This is the question that I always think of when yes. about the, the uh, would you rather have 
a fresh, juicy peach in July, or would you rather have a canned peach and sugar syrup in January? Okay. <laughs> that's yeah. That's how I feel about. It. But no, the, but so the canned music isn't that bad, and, and I've done plenty of it. So um, listening to the old violinists, Jacques Thibault, Fritz Kreisler, Nisha uh, Elman, Yasha Heifetz, uh, Bronislaw Fuberman. Fred, Fred, you you are. The solution man and the idea man. I, I have a feeling you, you that there's, there's no problem that you wouldn't want to try to solve. Thank you very much for sharing this uh, time with us. And it seems to me we have another conversation here once you're willing to open up about... Oh, yeah. Open up all the stories about the uh, Lincoln Center and... Uh, yeah, how I became the director and how... how yeah, what, all that. What right. happened before and after the, the whole... Uh, right. So, so maybe, may, maybe when you're ready, we can, we can do that. So Fred Sherry, thank you very much for joining us on Hunkered Down. Thanks, it's been Alan. a pleasure and honor meeting you. I'm so glad that Rolf Schulte put us together. Oh yeah. Rolf is, and by the way, Rolf is a hero also. You've been listening to the Hunker Down Podcast, conversations with actors and musicians about their lives on stage during a pandemic. If you have any questions or suggestions, please contact us at UpperWestSideRadio at gmail.com. That's one word, UpperWestSideRadio at gmail.com.
what so a lot of collaborations um you also uh were an experimenter clearly you experimented um you weren't yes. just a player of haydn and mozart and and, and beethoven um and i found this piece by john rockwell in the new york times from the classical view column in 1991 uh he quoted you saying chamber performances create an image of community real or illusory and then and then he wrote and mr sherry disrupted that image <laughs> is that true well i what i what i always wanted to do then and still want to do now is i i don't think it should be a complacent kind of thing i think the audience needs to be a part of it and people you know when people say oh i love classical music it puts me to sleep i go ah please yeah. don't say that that's that's against what we're trying to do with this stuff. It should be stimulating, even when it's tranquil and the mood is, or the mood is sad or whatever. The, the still, there should be a sense that there's, there's inspiration coming into the, the listener. That's, I mean, it's as I see it, it's a three-part. There are the three parts. Three. There's the composer, and there's the players, and then there's the audience. 